Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the humanitarian tragedy underway in Gaza, with 9,425 killed and 24,000 wounded, according to Palestinian officials in the West Bank. Joining us is a mother and daughter who have lost 36 members of their family. Gada Hagil, a third-generation Palestinian refugee who worked as a translator for The Guardian in Gaza from 2000 to 2006. She is currently a visiting professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta, Canada. And also joining us is her daughter, Reda Agil, who spent the last two years volunteering and living in Gaza. Gada has an article at The Guardian which we will discuss. From my hometown in Gaza, the unthinkable news... 36 of my family members are dead. Then, with Hezbollah poised to open a second front in the Israel-Hamas war, we'll get an analysis of the much-anticipated speech by the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, and speak with a long-time Lebanese-based journalist, Thanasi Kambanis, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and director of the Center for International Research and Policy. Until recently, he was working as a journalist based in Lebanon, And his books include A Privilege to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel, Once Upon a Revolution, An Egyptian Story, and most recently, Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. Then finally, with the U.S. again drawn into the Middle East while needing to pivot to Asia, we will get an assessment of U.S.-Chinese relations ahead of next Saturday's APEC summit in San Francisco, where Biden and Xi will meet. Joining us is Cheng Yang Xi, who is a senior research scholar at the Stanford Center for China's Economy and Institutions at Stanford University, as well as a visiting professor in the Department of Finance at Imperial College London, the former president of the Asian Law and Economics Association. He previously taught at the University of Hong Kong, at Seoul National University, and at the London School of Economics. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Garda Agil, who's a third-generation Palestinian refugee who worked as a translator for The Guardian in Gaza from 2000 to 2006. She's currently a visiting professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta in Canada, and she has an article at The Guardian from my hometown in Gaza, The Unthinkable News, 36 of my family members are dead. And also joining us is her daughter, Reda Agil, who spent the last two years volunteering and living in Gaza. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gada and Reda Agil. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're both clearly in touch with what's happening in Gaza. 
the latest figures we're hearing in terms of those killed and wounded uh, come from the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, 9,425 killed, 24,000 wounded. And in terms of your your family, are the, the rest of your family safe now? Have they moved? Uh, I mean, they, they moved from the northern part. They followed the Israeli military's instructions, but nevertheless were killed. So how did that happen? Well, it was um, the 26th of October, actually, when we received the news. It was around 10 a.m. In, in Gaza time that they heard uh, bombardment, you know, like very big explosive. So and then followed by a second one and by a third one. So people just rushed to see what is happening. And another bomb has been fallen. So the entire refugee camp has been shaken. I mean, my uncle and my sister telling me it's like an earthquake. It's unprecedented. The sound, the terror, and my home, it just a few blocks, few meters from my grand uncle home and grand aunt home. So about seven or eight homes have been destroyed killing dozens of people. Now 47 people have been killed among them now, not for 36 of, of family member, but more than that. And many still under the rubble and all these debris and, um, you know, flying stones ended in, in my home. So my home also has been partially damaged where my sister sought shelter about two weeks ago following the orders of the Israelis to move to safe area. We know very well that there is no safety in Gaza. I already lost our apartment in Zahra town. It has been flattened to ground together with another probably dozens. When I reported, which was like two weeks ago, there has been 500 families from my town lost their homes. As we speak now, there are probably thousands of families. And when you speak about family, you talk about, you know, 10 family members, 12 family members, six family members. So they are in the streets now. No fuel, no um, food, no water, no communication. So really, it's horrible being belief what is happening. There is no safety, not now and not before. But the world only see these tragedies when such assault is happening. And two-year-old Julia Abu Hussein, your sister's granddaughter, was in the living room of her family home when she was killed by shrapnel, which blasted into the kitchen. And did that happen in the Han Yunus refugee camp? Is that where did your the two-year-old Julia get killed? Yes. So just for context, um, my grandmother's home is a couple of meters away from the houses that were flattened right in, in front of our home. So the impact of uh, the, the impact of the almost six bombs that fell in the area uh, actually hit around 13 homes um, that were completely flattened, but affected everything else around it and surrounding it. So the the magnitude of the pressure um, that, and it's undescribable what kind of, of 
pressure um, a human body can can even go through uh, being such a close proximity of these explosives. And um, not only are you talking about Sharpenel and you're talking about all, all the, the fragments of the debris that is flying all around, um, after the, the event happened, my uncle's homes, when they came from upstairs, they were completely uh, ash gray. And they didn't even comprehend what had happened, what had gone, because you don't see anything. And, and actually, at that moment, uh, Julia has been waiting for Russia, my niece, to take her to Assad shop to buy a candy. So when the first or second bomb happened, everyone is running to the designated area to take shelter, which was the kitchen. So Rawan, Julia's mom, took her in her, you know, between mm -hmm. her arms. That's the most, you know, place that you could do in order to protect your child. But still, the shrapnel get into the window, broke it to the head of Julia, taking her life and critically wounding Julia's aunt, Naram, let alone, I mean, and as we speak now, people are still under the rubble because rescue team are being targeted, ambulances are being targeted, the schools are being targeted. So until now they are digging, you know, the rubble in order to rescue the bodies of people. And yesterday my uncle told me that they managed to pull the body of Umayma. She's the age of my daughter, 26 or 27 years old, who sought refuge in my grand uncle home knife, leaving you know, the east of Khanyunis, because this is adjacent to border. So this is the heart of Khanyunis refugee camp. It's supposed to be the safest area because it's not next to border. It's not next to any government offices. This is the safest where people have been waiting since 75 years to return to their homes. So I just want to remind the people that 75% of Gaza people are refugees. They have been kicked out in during the ethnic cleansing of Palestine that took place in 1948 and ended in these camps awaiting for their return. These temporary shelters now become permanent. The occupation becomes the protracted occupation turning into apartheid, turning into besieged. Gaza now is the largest, you know, air prison in the world. Um, open air present in the world, and and you know this is this is the context. So, in your article, uh, Gada, you say that together with my sister's family, it took them three days to travel less than twenty miles to Han Yunus refugee camp. So, I mean, there are still apparently hundreds of thousands of Gazans still in the north. Is that true? I mean, and why why haven't they evacuated? Not yeah. that you're necessarily safe in the south, but I, I wonder why people are still in the north. Well, as you, you might have heard from many people on the ground, really no place in Gaza is safe. It doesn't matter whether you're in the north, whether you're in the south, whether you're in the mid area, every single area has been hit. You're talking about Onerwa schools, you're talking about... This um, morning, actually. Yeah, you're talking about wedding halls, you're talking about the streets, you're talking about hospitals. Nowhere that is supposed to have been a designated safe spot has actually been able to provide... 
some type of, of solitude for people that have been displaced from their homes. So at some point after the initial um, leaflets had dropped to Gaza, asking people to start evacuating the north, going to the south, we saw from the first incident incidents mm-hmm. when people had started getting into cars, on donkey carts, on any, you know, on foot, and they started attacking them on, on the way to, to the, the south. So at that point, many Gazans understood what was happening. This was a psychological warfare. They wanted people to start fleeing the areas and moving from one area of the strip to the other, you know, promising some type of of safeguard when this wasn't the case. So many people opted that, no, I would rather die in in my home with my family, around my people, my my neighborhood. And not only that, if I may add, um, you know, Gazans understand from time and again how Israeli war machine has has worked in the Strip. We're talking every year to two years we have some sort of attack happening on Gaza. Um, People understand that, you know, nothing that has ever been promised by uh, this force has actually been implemented. If you're talking yesterday, the ambulances that that were um, carrying the wounded to the border, to to the Egyptian border, the critically wounded, and they had gotten um, some type of of agreement or permit from the Red Cross to actually move across um, uh, the, the, the sea road. And they were hit, not once, not twice but also three times after they arrived in front of Al-Shifa hospital. So if you're talking about also international organizations and bodies um, try facilitating for things where, uh, you know, it's not even being abided by, why would they care for our safety when we're moving from one place to the other? Yeah, and this is why it took three days, you know, from Gaza to my refugee camp. It's only less than half an hour. But there is no transportation. There is no safety in the way. So for three days, we thought they are dead. We did not get any piece of information about them. In fact, the the only thing that is available in Gaza now is the oxygen. Because they cut everything, water, food. It's starvation. This is what David Glass have said. This Israeli consultant, we're not going to put them on a diet. We're not going to starve them. We're going to put them on a diet. But this did not, you know, annihilate the willingness of people, you know, to be free. And this is now they are inflicting this horror. This is annihilation. This is genocide, what is happening in Gaza. Can the world imagine 10,000 people have been killed, among them over 4,000 children. Now the question is not where to go, but when to die, where to die. I would prefer to die in my own home rather than being dying in the street, dying in ambulance, dying in a UN school. People are targeted while taking bread, buying bread. Yesterday, they have been, many children went to get purchase bread and they have been targeted and the bread was full of blood. Can you imagine this? In fact, my 
nephew, Bashar, he's 13 years old. After this bombardment to my family, extended family home in Khanyunas, he said, auntie, I'm not going to sleep in our home because when they would bomb, they won't get my body from under the rubble. I want to go and sleep in the street. We have like a small garage covered by some asbestos and zinc. This is going to be easier for the rescue worker to rescue my body. Can you imagine? This is the ideas of a 13 years old child who have five days ago been digging, have been working to dig because no rescue team to get the corpses of his, you know, friends. This is unimaginable. This is we're living the unexpected. And unfortunately, this is, has been streamed live on the TV, people are watching that, but this complicity of this Western government to give Israel the greenest light, to go ahead, kill as much as you, call, you, you, you know you want, and all these you know, uh, statements by Israeli government to say that there is no civilians in Gaza. They are the crotches, they are the cancer, they are the demographic bomb. This is the pattern. Exactly. This is what have preceded. And now all the world talking about Israel, right of self-defense. How about those people 75 years you know, ago, dispossessed? Their villages have been destroyed. No one understands that Israel is established in the ruins of Palestine, Palestinian homes. These people have been waiting to breathe the air of dignity, the air of freedom, the air of rights. Three generations. My grandmother is gone. My parents. Now I am a third generation Palestinian refugee. This is my daughter. We are watching the same Nakba, the same ethnic cleansing. You know what? Graham, my grandmother has been telling me in 1948 when they have been hit in my village, Beit Daras, then moved to Hamama village, now no more on the, on the world map, then going to Sawafir, then to Jabalia, then to Gaza, then to Khanyuniskab. Exactly this is happening. They are pushing people out. You know where? From their refugee camp, they want to send them into Sinai to finish the unfinished project of Nakba. This is why the people say, if we're gonna die, we're gonna die on our land. We're gonna die in our home in search for freedom. We are not gonna be refugees for the third and fourth time. And this is why I always say, why when people don't wonder why Palestinian is the oldest, longest, largest refugee problem in the world? because Israel is not allowing them to return. If Israel really wanted to do good for the Palestinian, it would open the border in order for us to return to our homes and lands that is Israel now, not to the Sinai Peninsula to repeat the other Nakba. And actually they have said it, that we should inflict another Nakba to overshadow the, 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 the previous one. So let me ask Reda, though. You mentioned, Reda, that there have been previous wars between Israel and Hamas, and I think this is a third war. It was predictable, though, because uh, Hamas attacked Israel and murdered a bunch of civilians in a brutal way, and that the response from Israel was completely predictable. So do you or any of your neighbors and family hold Hamas responsible? Well, this is a question that's usually started many um, of the conversations uh, about what's happening right now in Palestine. But in reality, this has been the case where way before Hamas ever existed 
or way before um, we had this government come in 2006, actually Palestinians in Gaza have been living under a blockade. Um, what has been happening right now is, you know, I'm, I'm talking about Gaza, Gaza before this war, it still was under, you know, a, a, a continuation of, of um, strangling of life. Our electricity schedules were eight hours a day, eight on, eight off. In some places we had water coming in once a week or twice a week. Uh, and that's if you had, you know, electricity even of a pump that was able to put the water up into the barrels that you had on your rooftops. We have, you know, a border that doesn't open every day for, you know, of, of, of civilians because of Israel. You have people that are dying from cancer, from other diseases that we don't have the right machinery for it, so they're having to seek medical aid outside of Gaza. When we talk about Gaza as an open-air prison, and now rightfully so it's being changed and people are saying it's actually an open concentration camp because people don't have access to leave or to enter you're talking about 2.3 million people who don't have the basic rights of life and every single year we're expected to be living against all odds to to be able to live under an occupation which is the root cause of of why people are being stripped of their basic human rights so it's not hamas as much as we want to keep putting it on Hamas and in the Western media's outside to say what is the root and what started it, and it started in October 7th, it did not start in October 7th in, in all reality. And people want to live, people want to have autonomy, people want to have rights, people want to have education, they want to travel and they want to see the world. When I was there for the two years, my 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 cousin would tell me, okay, can we apply for you know these grants and scholarships? I really want to go study out outside yeah and he, he is fluent in english and french and he's never stepped outside of gaza why because palestinians have a love for life they have a love for education they have a love for everything that that encompasses a life that they deserve that is not occupation so really when when we are asked this question again we say it's not but every every single you know, situation where people are pushed into a corner. You talk about a cat. If you take a cat and you lock her in a room and you don't give her food and you don't give her water and you open the door to her and you want to corner her, what is she going to do? Automatically, she's going to scratch you. And this is the case right now of what is happening in Gaza. And not only in Gaza, we're also talking about the West Bank. Because, you know, we've been segregated and separated as people for, for a, a very long time. If, if we're going to be talking about history, we could go all the way back to 1948. We can go back to all the way to the Belfort Declaration, 1917. We could talk about every single root cause of why we are here today. But it did not start with Hamas and it did not start with... with uh, you know, October 7th. It is a ongoing, you know... Uh, it is, it's actually this idea that, that the Western, you know, government, mainstream media, and official cannot get it. As long as there will be an occupation, there will be resistance. Could be nationalists, Marxists, socialists, Islamists, but there should be resistance. Before, in 2000, it was Arafat, PLO, the secular, moderate, progressive partner of Oslo Peace Agreement that they have been attacked. Before that, it, it, you know, as Gaida said, we can go, if you decolonize 
dismantle the occupation, there will be no Hamas tomorrow, right now. There will be no Islamic Jihad, no popular front, no democracy, you know. It's the root cause is the occupation until the world do not grasp this piece of information that if we go to all the cases of history from Algeria to South Africa to India and look at colonization, settler colonization, the settlers and the colonizers are those who are the initiators of the violence. We should stop blaming the victims when they say enough. I want more than the bare life, the mere life. I want to breathe some air of dignity and freedom. And this is the cry of the Palestinian people that they have been sending it for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. And allow me the last thing to say. Probably I would argue as an academic that the longest nonviolent protest that have been in the 21st century, probably the 20th century, it was the Palestinian in Gaza. They assembled for about two years, two years, you know, protesting in demonstration every day, flying kite, cooking traditional food, dancing dabka and folklore, and carrying banners that we want to return in the blockade. It's the same cries that people say now, but what did Israel do? It shoot them. Hundreds have been killed. Thousands have been maimed. So don't ever say, I think Palestinian provoked this. Palestinians have been using every text in the book to amplify their voice for freedom. Mm -hmm. It is the problem of the world who let them down, who did not pick this cry. And now you see it. The civilians in Gaza are not civilians. They are not worth. They don't look to them as a full human being following the Israeli, you know. Yes, they are the human animals. But the full humanity the full names, the full stories, the 1,400 that have been called in 7th of October, they would get the light, the attention. They will have names and stories and narrative. We don't exist. This is a continuation of the eraser. This is, excuse me, this is racism. We always say the brown and black bodies never been counted. It is a racial state, racial contract that differentiate between civilian and civilian based on color, in nationality, in religion. And unfortunately, this is happening with full complicity of this so-called international community. And we're still paying a heavy price, heavy price unfortunately, unless the world grasp it, that Palestinian, you know, fight, struggle for basic rights, minimal rights, as every single human in this world, until they don't grasp that, this attack on Gaza, an attack on West Bank will continue and we'll have more radio interviews like that to try to understand what is happening. The root causes started in 1948 and that should be the start point to solve the Palestinian question, give them rights as every you know, nations in this world because they deserve it. We deserve it. Our children deserve it. Our family deserve it. Well, Gada Agil and Reda Agil, I thank you both for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having us, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Gada Agil and her daughter, Reda Agil. 
Gada is a third-generation Palestinian refugee who worked as a translator for The Guardian in Gaza from 2000 to 2006. She's currently a visiting professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta in Canada. And she has an article at The Guardian, From My Hometown in Gaza, The Unthinkable News, 36 of My Family Members Are Dead. And also joining us was her daughter, Reda Agil, who spent the last two years volunteering and living in Gaza. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the much-anticipated speech by the leader of Hezbollah, which is paused to open a second front in the Israel-Hamas war. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thanasi Kambanis, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and director of the Center for International Research and Policy. Until recently, he was working as a journalist based in Lebanon, and his books include A Privilege to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel, Once Upon a Revolution, An Egyptian Story, and most recently, Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamic Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sanasi Kambanas. Always edifying to talk to you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sanasi. And uh, there was this great expectation about the speech that the head of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, made on Friday. And he seemed to sort of take it up to the brink, but essentially not pull the trigger to unleash Hezbollah more or less telling the crowd that uh, we're just tying down the Israeli forces on the northern border. But he also went on to say, all the possibilities of our Lebanese front are open. All the choices are available, and we could resort to them at any time. So what did you make of Nasrallah's speech? So the first interesting thing to note is that the reactions around the region and in the West really show that people hear what they want to hear rather than sort of looking at the evidence. My read on it was uh, sort of mild concern, right? What I I heard Nasrallah to be saying is uh, Hezbollah is ready to escalate. Uh, Hezbollah is not going to make the the first move in moving towards outright regional war. Uh, but that Hezbollah correctly uh, sees itself as already involved uh, in a war with Israel uh, that goes beyond anything seen since 2006. Uh, so this was part of the the, the clarifying nature of the speech. Um, Nasrallah said, and this part is factually true, uh, he said, since October 7th, Hezbollah has been involved in exchanges across the border, uh, including uh, almost daily attacks on Israeli military installations in northern Israel. And these types of attacks prior to October 7th would have probably been seen as uh, as as escalatory or even maybe as a trigger to outright war. Uh, but in the context where Israel wants to avoid a major uh, uh, opening of a northern front with Hezbollah, uh, Israel has been ready to essentially respond with very limited uh, military counterstrikes to these Hezbollah actions. So the the context is one where we're already in 
uh, in a kind of, I would call it low grade war uh, on the on the frontier between Hezbollah and uh, uh, and Israel. Uh, and our concern now isn't will there be a war there since there already is. Is will it escalate into a out like a, a full on uh, outright war like we saw in 2006 or like we're seeing right now in Gaza? Uh, and if that happens, can we prevent uh, the war from spreading? Uh, again, in a more outright way than it already is across the entire region. Well, we're learning apparently that the Russians have uh, have allowed Assad in Syria to transfer ground-to-air a missile system, a Russian the Pantier system. So, does that mean that they're ready to shoot down Israeli aircraft who routinely fly over and bomb out? Kuds and other uh, assets that Iran has in Syria? So a sort of two-part answer. I think uh, we know that they have prepared for uh, outright war with Israel. I mean, this is what they've been doing since 2006, right? They have, uh, and, and we've gotten a glimpse of what some of that activity and, and military capacity looks like through seeing how Hezbollah and other axis of resistance militias fight in Syria uh, and in Iraq. Uh, primarily. So we know they're preparing uh, for, you know, high level, high tech warfare with uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, we don't know. So, so to your specific question, can they shoot down an Israeli plane? I mean, it's unlikely, right? It's, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the type of, of technological mismatch that uh, Israel's qualitative military edge has, has preserved. So I'd be surprised uh, if with Iran's support, they have acquired the capability to shoot down aircraft. Now, on the other hand, we know that they already are doing things like using drones, suicide drones, remote uh, uh, surveillance, um, and uh, skillful aiming of medium and long-range rockets. Uh, and of course, they have an amount of practice in urban warfare uh, maneuver and and combined uh, work with other uh, fighting with other factions uh, that we've seen them doing for for more than 12 years in Syria. Uh, that level of combat readiness is what uh, I would imagine uh, will make them a, a differently and maybe more formidable uh, opponent that, uh, for Israel than they were in 2006. Well, on Friday, the the head of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, said uh, about the American aircraft carriers off the off the Lebanese coast, "Your fleets in the Mediterranean do not scare us, and will never scare us. Your fleets that you threaten us with, we are prepared for them as well." So, is that just bluster? Well, what I mean, what what I heard uh, uh, in his comments about the fleet, I forget the exact wording. He went on uh, to say something to the effect of, uh, you know, these deployments that you mean as threats or deterrents are also liabilities. Uh, and and I heard that as a uh, a sort of implicit way of saying we plan to target uh, uh, your you know large and and ponderous uh, deployments. And you know, I mean, we can think back to the the coal bombing. Uh, in the Gulf of, of Aden, uh, you know, these and, and, and also to the uh, to the success that insurgents have had against the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and to a lesser extent Syria over the 22 years of the forever wars. Uh, uh, all that is, is very 
quick illustration of the vulnerability that comes with being an outside intervening power uh, with expensive and ponderous uh, resources that are run by uh, heavily trained and expensive soldiers uh, for whom force protection is a major interest, right? So if you are the U.S. military deploying this, these aircraft carriers uh, against uh, an insurgent, uh, a, a light footprint insurgent force that is willing to uh, have its uh, infantry or or navy commandos or whatever you want to call the the folks who would be attacking, they're they're willing to have those people die. Uh, that really does change uh, change the calculus. And I do think, um, I mean, so look, we've already seen uh, attacks on U.S. Uh, targets in Iraq and Syria since this war started. So this is, by the way, like uh, to my earlier comments about how there's already a, a simmering war between Israel and Hezbollah, there's also already a simmering war by axis of resistance militias against Israel and the U.S., right? The Houthis in Yemen have fired rockets at Israel. Uh, resistance factions in Iraq have attacked U.S. Uh, military targets in Iraq and Syria already. So this is already happening. Um, and uh, uh, the question is, um, uh, will they escalate? Um, and one of the things we were looking for in Nasrallah's speech is, uh, were there any kind of clear blueprints for escalating or de-escalating? Were there any clear red lines? And uh, as I read it, there weren't. Uh, so, you know, one one thing I had my ear out for as an analyst was, you know, would he say, uh, you know, if Israel refrains from specific actions in the in the Gaza Strip, uh, we will stay where we are now and not escalate. Uh, and I didn't hear anything like that. Instead, what I heard was that uh, we're we're ready. Uh, everything's on the table. And if things get worse, we will um, we'll do what 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 we see is necessary. Um, and in that instance, the U.S. is very vulnerable, right? We have, um, uh, you know, well-known deployments in northeast Syria, in Iraq. These are part of the uh, counter-ISIS uh, campaign. Um, and these these uh, deployments, their, their location and their shape is, I think, fairly well-known uh, to these axis of resistance militias. So uh, we're vulnerable. Uh, to attack, the, you know, the U.S. is vulnerable to attack, and we're vulnerable as a sort of international community to a a, a rapid fire and unpredictable escalation that would result uh, if, you know, God forbid, uh, there's there's a an attack that, you know, kills scores of Americans. You know, sort of harkening back to something like the barracks bombing in Lebanon. Uh, uh, forty years in, ago, uh, in the eighties, yeah, forty years ago, right? And and uh, and here we are again seeing the U.S. Uh, willing quite recklessly, I would say, to stake itself in a uh, in a regional conflict in which it would be better off maintaining some distance. Uh, so the U.S. is now right in in the in the first stages of like a, a escalatory, like a cat's cradle of mm -hmm. intertwined uh, connections and and really feckless feckless promises to uh, to join in on behalf of one or another feckless player. So early in Nasrallah's speech on Friday, he praised Hamas for carrying out the October 7th attack and said that no battle was more justified from a religious, moral or humanitarian perspective than the battle with the Zionists. And he went on to say that Israel's treatment of the Palestinians had gotten so bad that a great event had was required to restore the Palestinian cause to the number one issue in the world. Well, 
the latter part of it does seem to be happening, uh, that the Palestinian issue is now on the front burner around the world. But clearly, he supports the Hamas and their butchery. Yeah, and, and I think this is, uh, this is one of the, you know, sort of grisly but interesting uh, distinctions that, that might now uh, uh, sort of be erased. But, you know, historically, in the last, uh, let's say, probably 20 years or more, uh, Hezbollah has been quite careful to uh, actually hew pretty closely to the international laws governing conflict and to uh, mostly target military targets, uh, you know, obviously uh, with some exceptions, but they really haven't engaged since since 2000 uh, in any kind of overt or, or indiscriminate uh, uh, attacks on, on civilians. Uh, you know, there's 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 some some small exceptions to this, like the, the rocket fire in, in the 2006 war. But on the whole, they have not been uh, going after civilians directly uh, in the horrifying way that Hamas did on October 7th. Right. So uh, so Hezbollah has been has been able to use the argument, whether you buy it or not, is, is a different story. But they've been able to use the argument that they more or less follow the same rules that uh, Israel and Western armies do. Um, and there's some truth to that. Now, Hamas cannot make that argument at all, right? Hamas did a uh, an operation that was uh, that was primarily, uh, if not entirely, um, uh, a a massacre slaughter of of civilians, of non-combatants, like you know, visibly, provably non-combatant people, uh, and that is something that initially, uh, I think, cost Hamas. Uh, a great deal of of sympathy uh, in parts of the of the Middle East that would have otherwise, uh, you know, uh, 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 viewed appreciatively uh, a military operation by a Palestinian faction. Now, a lot of that sentiment has vanished in the outrage over the way Israel has conducted its war in Gaza, uh, but it remains a long term problem. Uh, for this axis of resistance, because if if uh, if the resistance factions are viewed as inhumane butchers, right? If they're viewed as um, as authoritarian uh, horror shows, whose uh, whose you know primary tactic and and trick in the arsenal is to kill civilians, um, that's uh, that's a hard sell, even even in communities that are otherwise have have, have sort of reached their limit in the uh, uh, in their ability to. Um, you know, to see any kind of political recourse uh, for the Palestinians. Now, uh, Nasrallah, I thought the, some of his important comments in his speech, speech on Friday, they were the ones where he tried to justify the Hamas attacks, uh, and he sort of came up with a conspiracy theory, uh, alternate history, sort of uh, fake facts uh, to say. So instead of saying it's okay that they killed civilians, because I think even he recognizes it's beyond the pale, uh, he just made up an alternate truth. He said, oh, they didn't kill those civilians. Civilians were killed. Uh, they were killed by Israelis, uh, in incompetent Israeli forces who arrived late um, to the threat and, and, and you know, mistakenly killed their own people. Um, you know, that's that's a kind of a pretty abhorrent uh abhorrent lie, um, but it, it shows uninternal weakness in to their own public, right? Because they they can't uh, they can't justify what Hamas did even uh, to their own diehard fans. And I think that's 
uh, that's a sign of one of the interesting long-term cleavages we have where people who are uh, uh, sympathetic to Palestinian autonomy, uh, you know, critical of Israel and its support from the U.S., but also who are uh, not interested in, uh, you know, in seeing a group like Hamas gain uh, gain power, momentum uh, uh, in Palestinian society. So, Tanasi, just in the last couple of minutes, then um, on Saturday morning in Amman, Jordan, Secretary of State Blinken met with the Lebanese caretaker prime minister ahead of a meeting with the foreign ministers of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and Qatar, as well as the Secretary of the Executive Committee of the Palestine Liberation Organization. So obviously they're all calling for a an immediate ceasefire and and Blinken went to Israel, and I think he was humiliated by uh, uh, Netanyahu, which is Netanyahu's way he treats American leaders, particularly Democrats, and didn't get his pause. And, and Netanyahu said, you know, we're not going to do anything, any any pause unless the, uh, the Hamas turns over all of the hostages. So I don't know what he's trying to achieve there in uh, Amman, but... The long and the short of it is, just to touch on Lebanon, since you've spent so much time there, I take it that one of the things that's restraining Hezbollah is the fact that the Lebanese people don't want another war like 2006, right? The country's a failed state. Poverty is, uh, I think, uh, about 40% of the, of the country living in poverty. It's just a catastrophe, the country itself. And the uh, war there would just break the back, would it not? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to uh, briefly speak about Lebanon and briefly speak about the wider region. Uh, so Lebanon is is a wreck. I mean, it's been it's been miserable for its people, uh, you know, since the economic crash in 2019, misrule, just uh, unbelievable uh, absence of everything from you know healthcare, pro- protein, you know, people actually uh, uh, malnourished in in a country that should be wealthy, um, and all this is because of the misrule of a group of warlords, the the or warlord factions, the most powerful among them being Hezbollah. Uh, so yes, for Lebanese people, it couldn't come at a worse time. I mean, it's never a good time to be subjected to a colossal bombardment that targets your infrastructure and wrecks the few things that work in your country, but this is as bad a time as as it could be. Um, and I'll note that if the war does spread to Lebanon in an outright way, we'll see things very quickly like cholera outbreaks, you know, people dying of 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 the sort of disease outbreaks that we expect in completely undeveloped societies. Um, so it's it's going to be even more awful uh, than one would expect. Now, all that said, we face a really distressing uh, mismatch of sort of means and ends in which um, what is good for Hezbollah as an entity is not what's good for Lebanon, right? So Hezbollah uh, is the the view of Hezbollah as polarized as ever. Uh, The group's diehard supporters, very loyal. The rest of the country, even more enraged at Hezbollah than it ever has been before for a variety of things from its intervention in Syria to its a central role in allowing uh, the port explosion uh, in in 2020, which remains a major uh, uh, tragedy and trauma uh, for Lebanon. So people are as angry as they've ever been, the supporters as loyal as they've ever been. And for Hezbollah, the uh, the cynical truth is that if it ends up in a war with with 
with Israel in which Lebanon gets destroyed, Hezbollah will emerge once again with its legitimacy laundered um, and its reputation burnished. We even see this uh, to a lesser extent with Hamas, right? I mean, Hamas commits these atrocious massacres on October 7th. Three weeks later, after Gaza has suffered an inhuman, indiscriminate bombardment, there are many, uh, many people who on October 7th were disgusted with Hamas who today are uh, are willing to focus more uh, on what Israel's done subsequently than they are on what Hamas did initially. That dynamic, that type of dynamic also would favor Hezbollah. Um, and I would say uh, more broadly in the region, right, we're, you know, we're worried as analysts, as, as human beings about this destructive war spreading even further. Uh, and my, uh, unfortunately, my diagnosis is that the, um, the groups that sort of hold the decision in their hand, including the Israeli government, by the way, um, are all perversely incentivized uh, towards um, escalation uh, in ways that actually produces worse results for them on a security basis and absolutely for the people uh, who will who will suffer the, the, the greatest destruction, because politically speaking, every single one of these uh, players, you know, the, the far right Israeli government, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, the re Axis of Resistance factions, uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, all of them um, are in some ways beleaguered with their own publics. All of them are, uh, you know, face face varying uh, uh, credible critiques that they are terrible at their job of governing their own pop populations and publics, uh, and all of them find redemption um, in uh, in a sort of total conflict in which they can present themselves as the sole uh, protector of the existential rights of their constituencies. Well, Thanasi Kambalas, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sanasi Kambanis, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and director of the Center for International Research and Policy. Until recently, he worked as a journalist based in Lebanon, and his books include A Privilege to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel, Once Upon a Revolution, An Egyptian Story, and most recently, Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. We're going to take a brief station break, and we're back with an assessment of U.S.-China's relations ahead of next Saturday's APEC summit in San Francisco, where Biden and Xi will meet. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shengang Shi, who is a senior research scholar at the Stanford Center on China's Economy and Institutions at Stanford University, as well as a visiting professor in the Department of Finance at Imperial College London, the former president of the Asian Law and Economics Association. He previously taught at the University of Hong Kong and at Seoul National University and at the London School of Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cheng Geng Xu. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been some reporting that Xi Jinping is a little uncomfortable with the mourning for Li Keqiang, the former 
premier. Do you think that's exaggerated? I understand that she is not particularly popular with the Chinese people, and if they're mourning Li Keqiang, then I guess as they did with Hu Yaobang back before Tiananmen, is that something we should be watching in the terms of? I know they may not necessarily have the ability to do anything about it, but it's worth trying to understand what public opinion is like in China. Right, indeed.、Uh, actually,、uh, among the mourners,、uh, you'll have、uh, different kinds of、uh, attitudes. So,、uh, uh, and、uh, I believe that、uh, the largest group of mourners、uh, are actually、uh, find an excuse to express their resentments against the Xi Jinping. And of course,、uh, he would find.、Uh, Actually, much worse than uncomfortable. So he, uh, uh, so uh, when things get worse, he would uh, uh, purge. So, but is there a change underway from the wolf warrior diplomacy? For example, the new Australian Prime Minister is visiting China this weekend、uh, and will meet with Xi. And he's had a series of meetings with Biden officials and and the governor of California. Is there rethinking of wolf warrior diplomacy underway ahead of the APEC summit in San Francisco next Saturday?、Uh, tactically,、uh, there could be adjustments because the Chinese economy is in a very bad shape. Uh, so uh, under uh, All kinds of pressures,、uh, he might make、uh, adjustments, but the、uh, overall objective of the Chinese Communist Party is not going to be changed. So,、uh, what we have observed in the past many years, that is actually a fairly consistent trend. So, that whole direction of of that trend. Is not going to be changed, right? But under the leadership of Xi Jinping, the Communist Party has changed, right? They've given him an extra term, and he—we don't even know how long he'll he'll serve. And he seems to be a departure, certainly from earlier leaders. And I mentioned Hu Yaobang and Xiao Xiang and and the other more liberal leaders in the past. And he seems to be turning the clock back. To Mao and being confrontational, and many people say he's not particularly well educated and he's very thin-skinned. And so, how much do you think he is a departure from his predecessors? Right. So then we have, we need a little, a little bit longer story. Sure. So the, we we have to understand、uh, what is the pur- purpose of the、uh, reform of the Communist Party. So before. Launching the reform in 1979, Deng Xiaoping、uh, made a clear、uh, principles for the reform, and、uh, he called these principles as as the four cardinal principles. So for for the, about the four cardinal principles, the number one is the so-called socialism, and the number two is the Communist Party's leadership means uh, 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 the, 
the leadership must be absolute, and uh, everything must be under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. And number three is ideology, means uh, Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought. And number four is dictatorship. So it's called uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. So these four cardinal principles was set out before launching the economic risk. And uh, they had never ever been deviated from these four cardinal principles. And uh, uh, a, uh, if we look at what happened in the 1980s, then here you see that uh, Deng Xiaoping personally launched uh, two campaigns before 1989. The one was called uh, 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 anti-capitalist the uh, uh, pollution, <laughs> and the, the, the other one is called uh, the capitalist spirit, something like that. So, so these are the uh, campaigns purging liberal intellectuals and also uh, purging uh, the, com uh, the liberal communist officers, including Hu Yaobang. And then in 1989, uh, the bloody cracking down in Tiananmen Square, it, it shows clearly that uh, uh, economic reform is a secondary. So the, the, the highest uh, priority for the Communist Party is to maintain its power. So whenever they see anything threatened to its power, they are going to use force, uh, even at the cost of uh, human lives. And then they, uh, what changed looks like a change in 1992. Uh, uh, so usually when people talk about Deng Xiaoping, people only talk about uh, what he said in 1992 without mentioning what he did in 1989. So these two events are closely related. So what happened in 1992 is because, number one, they had a bloody cracking down in China. So then he believed that uh, the Communist Party has already controlled China. So in, the, in terms of a terror. So this controlling is by terror. So he believed that the terror is working. Number two is the collapse of the communist regimes in Central Eastern European nations, and then later followed by Soviet Union. So Deng Xiaoping made an important uh, uh, judgment. So his judgment is the following. Number one, the Communist Party must be able to control the whole polity. So what he did in 1989 is a part of it. But there is a number two issue. Number two issue is that uh, he believed that the reason Soviet Union collapsed the it was because of their failure in the economic reform. So for the surviving of the communist regime, then he made this uh, uh, 1992 trip and uh, talked about economic reform as the, as the critical measure to save the communist regime. So this is uh, when people talk about the Chinese reform, forgetting about the overall environment, overall background, then people make a, a, a wrong judgment. So that, that is why uh, in the West, there is a, a tendency 
of getting China wrong. So getting China wrong actually is a pretty deep. So the deep reason is because uh, people forget about uh, what happened in 1989 and completely forget what Deng Xiaoping has said about these four cardinal principles. And, and these four cardinal principles are all now in the, uh, in the uh, constitution of the party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when Xi Jinping repeatedly using uh, Mao Zedong's terms, saying that the party must lead everything, he is actually re-emphasizing what Deng Xiaoping has said. Well, Qianggang, she we've run out of time, but I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Qianggang Shi, who is a senior research scholar at the Stanford Center on China's Economy and Institutions at Stanford University, as well as a visiting professor in the Department of Finance at Imperial College London and the former president of the Asian Law and Economics Association. He previously taught at the University of Hong Kong at Seoul National University and at the London School of Economics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.